have a, uh, a good friend, Ricardo, and some of you may remember him. He taught with us on Zoom uh, back when we were just doing church online. And he tells this story. There's this married couple that have been married for about 15 years. And uh, the wife, unfortunately, battles uh, anxiety. Every night she just wrestles and struggles with anxiety and has an inability to, to go to sleep and to rest. And he doesn't remember, the husband doesn't remember the last time that his wife slept through the night. And her big concern, her big anxiety is that their house is going to get broken into, that they're going to be robbed, and they're going to lose everything that they have. It's not even necessarily about her physical well-being, but it's kind of about the possessions. And so this goes on for years and years until one night they're sleeping, and um, the husband hears something. He hears a wrestling downstairs. And so he does his best to like just get up as quick as he can because he doesn't want his wife to you know, think about and worry about what it is. So he gets up and he goes downstairs. And sure enough, who is it? It's a burglar. And so he turns on the light and he confronts the burglar and he just says to him, he says, look, like we don't want any trouble. Please don't harm us. Feel free to take whatever you want. And so the guy says, okay, cool. That's a fair deal. And as the man gets ready to walk back upstairs, he turns around and he stops and he says, oh, actually, sir, one more thing. Before you leave, would you just please go upstairs and introduce yourself to my wife? She's been anxiously waiting to meet you for 10 years. I'm so glad that you laughed at that because one of the healthy things to help alleviate anxiety actually is laughter. But no, not, not to make light of anxiety nor to make light of any troubles or worries or concerns that we carry or that we have. But I think the reality is, and what we're going to talk about today through Paul's invitation, is what exactly is anxiety and, and what exactly does it do to us? And, and how does it impede us from living into the peace and the life and the reality of God's kingdom that he invites us to enjoy and to live into. One of the things that we're going to see and we'll talk about is the fact that a burglar might steal from you once, but anxiety comes and is a perpetual thief and steals life from us over and over and over again. I was actually reading an article, um, this was back from 2019, and it's the World Health Organization. They did a world mental health survey, and they said Americans were the most anxious people out of 14 countries they studied with more clinically significant levels of anxiety than people in Nigeria, Lebanon, and Ukraine. This is a 2019 survey, okay? So nothing was going on in Ukraine at the time in terms of the level and height that it is now. And again, not to make light of that, but if you think about Lebanon, if you think about Nigeria, if you think about Ukraine, what are those countries? They're all places of great, great instability, places of great turmoil and tension. And the U.S. ranked in 2019 as as like the one of the most anxious countries out of 14 that they studied, even higher than those countries. And so I think this reality, and we've been talking about to a degree, and my wife spoke well to it this morning, but we're living in anxious times. We've been living in anxious times. And what do we, as disciples of Jesus, what does that mean for us? How do we engage that? How do we enter into anxious times? And how do we act and function becoming more like Jesus, who was a peaceful presence in the middle of anxiety all around him. Anxious systems surrounded Jesus, and yet somehow he entered in with great peace and was able to usher in the kingdom of God. And that's our heart, that's our desires. We continue to talk about being an authentic community that makes Christ known, or being a people who are, and even this space being given to us to be a people that bring and usher in healing for people. What does that look like? What does that mean? How do we go about that? So this morning, we're going to be in chapter 14 of Philippians. We're continuing our study. We're entering into the last chapter. And the last chapter of Philippians is actually all about two things. It's about the peace of God, and it's about the provision of God. 
And we're going to look this morning at that first section, verses 1 through 9, talking about the peace of God. Now, to give us just a, a quick background, I want to talk a little bit about the end of chapter 3. Because in the end of chapter 3, Paul said, but remember that your citizenship is not in heaven, but from it you await, excuse me, but our citizenship is in heaven, not, not from here. And we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. And that idea or that truth of Christ being Lord and the one to whom all things are subject is going to be a key thing that we're going to be talking about as we move through the beginning of this. And so Paul is talking about, yeah, living out your faith in light of your true citizenship and also in light of your pursuit of your desired destination. If you were here last week, you remember Ricky talking about, like, are we living for Pasco or are we living for, uh, for Banff, right? And sometimes we get sidetracked and know nothing against anyone from Pasco. If you've got issues with that, take it up with her. I'm just saying her example. But, right, like, where's our mindset? Where's our focus set? And, again, Paul's going to invite us to think about those same things. Where's our, where's our mindset and where are our actions following that as we talk about living in anxiety versus living in the peace of God? And so Philippians chapter 4 goes like this, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So in verse 1, again, we see, we're reminded as we embark on this closing chapter that Paul speaks to the Philippians very tenderly. He says, My brothers and my sisters, whom I love, whom I long for, my joy and my crown. And he calls them my beloved. Again, this is a letter of friendship. It's a letter of deep encouragement. It's not necessarily, again, a theological or a dogmatic book. And yet, Paul here in chapter 4 is going to get pretty theological with us. He's going to take us to some places of some things, again, that we really need to consider because Paul, again, here touches on, I think, this idea that there are things that we believe, things that we think we believe, And which one are we living out of? Are we living out of what we truly believe deep down? Or are we living out of what we think we believe that we've only piled knowledge on top of, but actually it rears its ugly head and that's the thing that that moves us forward? Paul's inviting us to think about the reality of, of peace and where does it come from versus anxiety and what is it and where does it come from? And Paul starts by talking about the thing that he's been talking about over and over and over again. Stand firm in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. These are two things that Paul has repeated over and over and over again. This reality of standing firm in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord. Now, again, I said we're going to talk about this idea of what he closed with chapter 3 of everything being subject to Jesus. You're going to notice that from here on out throughout chapter 4, or at least in these 1 through 9, he's going to talk about Jesus as Lord. 
And thinking and understanding about Jesus as Lord and Lordship is going to be key, and we'll talk about that more. But just so you understand, when he invites them to stand firm in the Lord and to rejoice in the Lord, this Lordship piece is going to be huge for us, again, to understand the difference between peace versus anxiety and where does it come from and how do we deal with it. And so with that in mind, he says, he starts off this, this chapter addressing Yodia and Syntyche. Now, these are two women who we don't know much about. We don't know what their issue is. We don't know what their quarrel is, though I would propose to you that it's not a theological thing because if it was theological, Paul would address it right away like he does in every other book, right? If it was a moral thing, an issue of morality, again, Paul also would address it right away and he doesn't do that. He just says, hey, so what this is, I believe, is a social thing, meaning a relational thing. You have two women who potentially were part of the the founding of the church. If you remember Acts, when Paul enters into Philippi, he comes and he finds that there's a bunch of women praying at the riverside because there's no official synagogue. And so that's where he finds them. And potentially, Yodia and Syntyche were part of that original group of women. And I propose that because it says that these are women that have labored with him in Christ Jesus. This is about a 10-year-old church. They've probably labored with him that whole time. And what he finds out, I'm assuming through Epaphroditus, because how else would he know it, right? He's in prison. Is that these two women have this social issue. They've got this relational thing that they just haven't dealt with. And it's going on and on and on. And he finally says to them, in public, mind you, right? Think about that. This is a public letter, right? Just pause for a second. How would you guys feel if I stood up here and said, okay, just because they're on staff and I can use it. Joel, Lisa, it's time to deal with this issue. Let's go. Can you imagine that? But that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Why? Because there's something going on relationally between these two women. Again, it's not theological. It's not moral. It's just a social thing. It's like a ticky-tacky thing between them. And Paul says, look, If you are to stand firm in the lordship of Christ, that has to do with peace as a whole. And one of the key things is the peace between you, the peace between brothers and sisters, whose names are together written in the book of life. Now, this isn't even the the, the meat of what we're going to talk about today, but I want to address that because it's here, and it is part of this peace of God which we're going to talk about. What Paul is saying, there are things in life which, yes, we debate about. There are things in life which, yes, maybe we divide about. There are things in life which, yes, have this, this high level of stuff that can cause rifts, can cause tensions, and I'm not going to name them, but we're living in a very divisive time right now. But Paul says, within the family of God, when your name is written in the book of life and my name is written in the book of life, we have a different way in which we are to go about these types of issues. And that issue is not just for thinking about you and me in this issue, but it's thinking about the third person in that issue, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ the one who has died for us, the one who has rose again for us, the one who has called us his own and is our Lord, and he is the third person in that conversation, and he has seen it right and fit to write both of our names in the Lamb's book of life. And so who are we to take a ticky-tacky thing and hold it against each other and not live as people of reconciliation of peace? Paul says, stand firm in the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. And one of the first ways you do that is being a people of reconciliation within the body of Christ one to another. Why? Because your brothers and sisters, your family members of God, your names are written in the book of life. Work it out. Remember, a book of love and encouragement. I love Paul. He just gets at it. So verse 4, then he moves on and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And we'll come back to those two things. He says, For the Lord is at hand. Again, you, you notice he's, he's saying the word Lord over and over again. He's using the name Lord. Again, the Lord is the one who is one who governs. The Lord is one who is sovereign. 
The Lord is one who is in control. The Lord is the one who dictates actions and future movement. That's who the Lord is. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you might remember uh, Mark chapter 1 when Jesus comes and his very first words, according to Mark's Gospel, Mark 1, 14 and 15, he says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Paul is using that same exact language that Jesus used. What does it mean for Jesus to say the kingdom of God is at hand or for Paul to say that the Lord is at hand? Remember, Paul through this letter, and he's going to do it again and again, he's constantly inviting us to have the long view. Again, to think not about settling in Pasco, but to think about settling in Banff, our end goal, right? So he's saying look ahead, but he's also saying as you look ahead, what that does is it impacts the now because you're living through that future, and right now the kingdom of God is here. We're living ultimately as citizens of heaven, which is far off at some point, we don't know when, but right now we can actually experience governance of the lordship of Christ, his love, and in particular he's saying his peace. It's at hand. You can reach out, you can touch it, you can taste it, you can smell it, you can experience it. It is here. There are elements of the kingdom of God that are right here, right now. And one of the key ones he says is do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand, therefore don't be anxious about anything. So what is anxiety? We need to talk about that. I want to give you the the Greek word for it, because I think it's super important here. I don't care if you remember the Greek word itself, but to to understand the meaning I think is important. The the Greek word for anxiety that's used here, or when he says don't be anxious, it's this word merimnao. And merimnao takes three forms in Scripture. To be anxious, to care for, or to worry about. And what it means is to be drawn or pulled apart in opposite directions, divided into parts. I want you to think about that for a second. Anxious or anxiety, merimnao, means drawn or pulled apart in opposite directions, divided into parts. I didn't know she was going to do this, but I'm so grateful actually that my wife this morning dropped some knowledge on us and she talked about the two different sides of our brain, right? We have the sympathetic and we have the parasympathetic. One helps us to rest and to slow down. One is the one that drives us to move into action. And this Greek definition is actually explaining that, the the definition of this word, because it's made up of two words, meritso, which means to divide or to tear, and noia, which is mind. And so you get this merimnao, which means to divide or to tear the mind. To be anxious or to have anxieties, to have a mind that is being torn in two places at the same time. It's having thoughts that are legitimate and true, and then it's having thoughts that are destructive and not so. Both sides of your brain are trying to do work at the same time. You're trying to rest and slow down, but also your mind is driving, 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 and you're being literally torn into two places. Anybody relate to that? I do. And I want to say this. I'm talking to you this morning as someone who's had to lean into and meditate on this scripture more and more than I ever thought I'd realize. In the last year, I've had more anxiety than I've ever had in my whole 42 years. I've had more nights where I've been restless at night, and my wife has actually said, what's wrong with you? She's never said that to me more in 15 years of marriage. But this year, she's had to say, why were you, what, were you, did you sleep last night? And sometimes I've had to say to her, no, I just, I wrestled. Why? Well, I got woken up and my mind just started going. My mind was being torn in two places at the same time. Anxiety, anxious, worry, the cares. This word is the same word that Jesus says when he looks at Martha in Luke chapter 10. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. You are troubled, but there's actually only one thing that I invite you to do. 
This is the same word in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, look at these birds. Do you see how they have food? Do you see how they have a place to live? Do you see the tremendous provision that they have? And they do not worry. They do not merimnao. They do not have minds that are torn in two places. Why? Because I love them and I care for them. And if I care for you, if I care for them this way, how much more do I not care for you? So don't be divided or torn in your mind, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Anxiety is distress about future uncertainty. It's mental agitation that is primarily concerned with what will happen in the future. It's concern about a threat to my well-being, whether real or imagined. And it's when, again, my mind is divided by these destructive thoughts. It leads to often a lack of rest because your mind wants to be present where you are, but it's, again, also concerned with something negative in the future and it does not allow you to rest. Looking at this just from you know, a couple searches clinically, things like that, it stems from or marked by insecurity, something bad will happen to me, helplessness, nothing I can do about it, or isolation. There's no one that will understand, or even worse, there's no one that can help me. This is the anxiety that Paul is talking about. And he says, the Lord is at hand, and so therefore do not be anxious in this way, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Remember, the Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious. I want to talk about that for a second. I think often this is interpreted as a command, do not be anxious. But again, if we look at the, the original language, the, the, the Greek phrasing of this, I'd like to propose to us that the original language actually allows us to understand this as an invitation. That when Paul says here, do not be anxious, it's actually an invitation to us. It's an invitation for us to come and to rest those who have a soul full of anxiety. Again, I think it mirrors Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29 when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all you who are worried, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, take my ways upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find the opposite thing of anxiety, because anxiety tears and pulls. I have rest for you. So I think Paul is writing this as an invitation. Again, to experience the Lord and his love and his goodness. And the reason why I think it's important for us to think about it as an invitation is this. If you're like me and you're actually been battling with anxiety at different times in this season, you hear the command that says, do not be anxious, and what do you do? You actually get anxious. Because you go, oh crap, I'm disobeying my Lord. No, 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 no. The Lord knows you're anxious. And the Lord has something for you. He has a gift of love and grace for you. And it's an invitation to something that you do not have and you cannot do on your own. Do you hear that? It's an invitation to something that you do not have and you cannot produce on your own. It's an invitation to a gift that comes through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul will talk about later. And so what does Paul do? Again, Paul says, don't be anxious. And here's the thing, too. I think as Paul says that, whether you want to hear it as a command or an invitation, but I invite you to hear it as an invitation this morning, Paul is not saying there's nothing to be anxious about. Do you guys remember where Paul's writing from? Paul's writing from prison. He's been beaten. He's been flogged with rods. He's been arrested. He's being watched 24-7 by guards. He loves this church deeply. 
He longs for them. He wants to be with them. He doesn't know whether or not his future is going to be life or it's going to be death, right? As he talked about in chapter 2. He says, I long to live because that's better for you, but I also long to die because that's better for me. I get to go, but, but I don't know. His mind literally is being torn in that passage in 2. And he actually says to us later in chapter 3, he says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. He's thankfully not sick anymore. And he literally says, he goes, I'm sending him back to you and I'm grateful I can do that because now I will be less anxious. So I think even Paul is writing to us here as a practitioner of his own advice, not someone who said, I'm never anxious and I've got it all figured out. No, Paul knows better than anybody probably what life is like in a broken world. You know what I'm saying? And so Paul is saying, look, anxiety actually is normal. It's natural. But there is a peace that is supernatural. Anxiety is human. Peace is from the Lord. The other thing I would say where we're just defining and talking about what anxiety is a little bit, anxiety is not a sin. Can you hear that and receive that this morning? Anxiety is not a sin. Anxiety is an emotion. It's just like fear, which often we think that the Bible calls sin. It's, it's not sin, it's an emotion. Anger. We often think that anger is sin. Anger, Bible actually says, in your anger, do not sin. See how it separates that? Anger is an emotion. Fear is an emotion. Sadness, we often try to hide it. It's an emotion. It's not sin. Anxiety goes in that same list. It's an emotion. It's not sin. And maybe that, too, can help us be a little less anxious this morning. I'm serious. Emotions are given to us by God. They are healthy. They are necessary. They are part of our full-orbed humanity, again, that I love that my wife spoke about. We're holistic beings. We're embodied souls. And part of being embodied is that we have a mind and we have an emotion. We have a will. We have all these different parts of us. God created all of them, all of all good. We're not to be governed by any of them. Last week, don't be governed by your belly. This week would say, don't be governed by your emotions, but acknowledge them. Be aware of them. And do what with them? Now we're going to get to the meat of what Paul says here. Because Paul not only gives us an invitation, do not be anxious. Paul now gives us instruction of what does that actually look like? What do I actually do with this emotion? It's not a sin, but it is not the full peace of God that he has for me. Paul says this. Paul says, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says, but. But is a word of contrast, okay? And when Paul writes and he puts a big but there, a, a but, it's, it's, it's a word of contrast. And it's meaning this contrast actually is the antidote to the thing that he's inviting you to not be, but the thing that he's inviting you to now experience. And so it's a word that's saying, redirect that thought energy. Okay, so don't be anxious, but here's how you redirect that thought energy, or here's how you go from having a divided mind to having a united integrous mind is through this next step that I'm going to tell you. But, he says, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I know Paul, like, run on and run on and run on, and sometimes you go, oh, he just repeated himself. But again, what I propose to you is that when Paul says by prayer, with supplication, and thanksgiving, and present your request. This is not Paul just repeating the word for prayer over and over again, right? Because you might look at that list and you go, well, isn't that what prayer is? Isn't prayer just supplication and also thanksgiving and also presenting my requests? I mean, on one hand, yes. But on the other hand, I think Paul's very intentional here, and here's why. The word for prayer, and I know this is like the third time I'm talking about a Greek word, and I don't care if you remember the word for it, but I think the understanding, the root meaning is important here. The word prayer, that actually appears all throughout our New Testament Bible, it's the same word that we get for the word prostrate. Prostrate, okay? 
prostrate meaning a posture in which you come and you bring yourself and you lay your hands and your face downward before one who is greater in authority and greater in worth and greater in value than you are and also in anything else that's going on in your life. And so Paul says your first step in actually experiencing the peace of God and having a unified mind as opposed to a mind that's being ripped in part by the cares of right now and the cares of the future and realizing and thinking that you're alone and there's no one that can help you and that there's no one that will understand. He says your first step is prayer. It's this act of going prostrate before God as an act of worship. It's to worship. It's to come and to acknowledge that there actually is someone who is with you and you're not alone. There actually is someone who can help you and is all-powerful. There actually is someone who can relate to you, and his name is Jesus, who suffered and battled anxiety himself, I believe, when he was in the garden. Go to the one and lay before, and again, and acknowledge his lordship, acknowledge his worth and his value and his power far above and beyond anything else that is happening in your life and that could ever happen in your life and above anyone else that you think or want and desire to help you. Paul says go in prayer. Go and worship. And in that worship, what do you do? He says, bring your supplication. What's supplication? Supplication is strong, emotional, and persistent plea. Supplication is bringing the emotional weight of everything that you're feeling to God. Again, not denying your emotions, not calling them sin, not trying to avoid them, not trying to stuff them, not trying to bury them with knowledge just in your head, but taking your emotions, the full breadth and depth of all that they are, and bringing them in a posture of worship before the one who is Lord of all and has power to fix and heal all things. Bring the full emotion of who you are and what you have to him in that process. It's the picture of Hannah in the Old Testament when she is being embarrassed because she can't have children and she goes before the Lord and she cries out and she brings her supplication, the full weight of her emotion before the God who she believes and knows loves her and is powerful and has the ability to intervene and bring healing. She brings the fullness of it to God and says, God, would you help me? Be my defense. Be my warrior. Be my deliverer. Be my Lord. Speak to me about what's true because they're speaking these things to me and I'm feeling these things. Lord, what do you say? Supplication is the bleeding woman in the New Testament who her whole life has been suffering and struggling. And she hears about this guy named Jesus and she says, if I can just go, and it's not even supplication with words, but it's supplications with just reaching out her hands as if I could just touch the hem of his robe, I think, I believe that he can heal me. She doesn't go out of that denying her pain. She doesn't go out of that pretending she doesn't have emotional baggage in her weight. It's the fullness of who she is as an embodied soul. And she goes and she seeks out Jesus and she says, if I can just. Physical body supplication. It's the Roman centurion, right? Whose child is sick and knows what it's like to be under the authority and lordship of others. And he believes that there is one who is more powerful, one who is worthy of worship. And he goes to that one and he says, if you could just come, if you could just do this thing. Again, acknowledging the pain, acknowledging the hurt, acknowledging the trauma, acknowledging it, but bringing it in supplication, the fullness of who he is, the emotional plea, even repetitive. I propose to you this, that it's also Jesus, again, in the garden. Do you remember Jesus in the garden? 
It says that he was troubled. His soul was deeply troubled, even to the point of what? Sweating blood. I looked that up, and people say there actually is a scientific explanation for that. There's a, there's a way in which people can get so anxious, and anxiety can do all kinds of things in our bodies. One thing it can do, it can actually cause so much pressure and tension in your head that it can pop the blood vessels, and it can look like you're sweating blood. Anxiety is not sin. Jesus never sinned, but he was anxious in that moment. Why? He was there present in that garden, and he was thinking about the future. And what does he say to God in supplication? He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, if you, if you will, take this bitter cup from me that I'm going to have to drink in a few days. But not my will, but yours be done. Again, supplication, full emotion, and, and repeat repetitive plea. Come in worship, come in supplication. Bring the fullness of who you are before God and let him know what's going on. But also with thanksgiving. What's thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is remembering God's faithfulness in the past and for the future. See, what, I love the, the New Living Translation. It says this. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. That translation, all he has done, again, is speaking all he's done in the past and all he has done in the future. All he has done. Now, this is not name it and claim it. This is not, I thank you, God, that I got that thing. That I, no, no, no. It's not name it and claim it. What it is, it's claiming that God is faithful. It's believing that God is good. It's declaring that God is trustworthy. It's exercising the fact that you believe God is powerful and he's faithful and his faithfulness is what awaits me in the future, not this unforeseen destruction that may or may not even be real. But it's God's faithfulness that awaits me down that hallway. It's God's faithfulness that awaits me in that meeting. It's God's faithfulness that awaits me tomorrow. It's God's faithfulness that awaits me in three weeks. It's God's faithfulness that awaits me. And so I thank him for that. Thank you, God, that you have been faithful all these years. I've been through so many things with you, and you've always delivered me. You've never lost any trust in terms of forgetting or forsaking one of your promises. You've always come through, and I can stand here today now in your grace. Why? Because you've been faithful. And so I look back on that, God, and with thanksgiving I say, I believe that your faithfulness is what waits me ahead. Prayer, worship, supplication with thanksgiving. And he says now, and present your requests then to God. What he's saying here, I believe, is be specific and clear about your requests. And come in a posture of trust and humility to surrender and trust these cares to God. He says, present your requests. Again, I think Jesus in the garden is a really good example of this. Right? Jesus was super specific. Jesus said, Father, take this cup, this specific bitter thing that you have asked me to drink and do that is causing me anxiety right now as I sweat blood in the garden, I'm asking you to take this certain thing. He's not worried about Peter. He's not worried about Judah. I mean, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things swirling around in, in Jesus in that moment, aren't there? His circumstances. It's not just a cup. There's, there's all kinds of stuff. But he's very specific to name the thing that is causing the anxiety. Father, this cup, this specific thing, I offer it to you in humility. Not my will, but yours be done. So again, this is not a posture. Presenting our requests is not demanding. It's not ultimatums. It's a posture of trust in humility. See, all of these things here again, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, presenting requests in humility, these are things that you do before a Lord. These are things that you do before one who you believe is powerful, who is sovereign, who is in control, and who is good and willing to wield that power for your benefit. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything because the Lord is at hand. 
but in everything with prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Present your request to God. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So I believe what Paul's saying here is similar to what Peter writes over in his first letter. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, that same word, merimnao, on him, because he cares for you, merimnao, you, actually. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 6-7. And some of you, there might be a pushback right now as I say all this. You might say, well, doesn't God already know my needs? If he's a good father, doesn't he already know? If he's present, if the Lord is really active and present here, doesn't he already know? And also, shouldn't he already be doing something about it all? Like, if he's that good, if he's that present, if he's that with me, if he sees the birds, but he also sees me even more, like, shouldn't, shouldn't I not have anxiety because he already has all these things? Here's what I gather from Paul's instruction here is that this, is that, and throughout all of Scripture, that prayer is not informing God about us, but prayer is conforming us to express faith and trust and to experience God's love. The way that Paul describes prayer here, prayer is not informing God about us and our circumstances. He already knows. But this type of prayer conforms us to this posture of trust, to a posture and a place where we actually can receive the grace and the love of God that he desires to work on our behalf. I really appreciate what Rebecca McLaughlin says in in her book, uh, talking about actually raising children to be prayerful. She says, the point of prayer isn't mostly to get things from God, but to get Jesus himself. The point of prayer isn't mostly to get things from God, but to get Jesus himself. See, and that I believe is exactly where Paul goes here, right? He says, do these things. Don't be anxious, but come in prayer, come in supplication with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God. And what does he say? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Where? Say it with me. In Christ Jesus. Read that with me. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Oh, it's not on your screen. I understand. Will guard your hearts and minds. Where? In Christ Jesus. There's a very specific place that the peace of God comes from. There's a very specific person who is the mediator and the giver of our peace that we can experience from God as opposed to anxiety. There's a very specific one who can come and help our minds not be divided and torn by things that are realistic and unrealistic, but there is one who can come and help our minds be whole again. And his name is Jesus. I want to talk about couple of things here. One of the things that's been really helpful for me as I've meditated on this passage is the reality of thinking about the difference between peace with God and the peace of God. Because what Paul says here is not do these things and you'll experience peace with God. What Paul says here is these are steps that you can take to lead you into peace, the peace of God. What's, what's the difference? Peace with God is knowing Jesus as Savior. That's what gives me peace. Okay? I want you to think about that for a second. Peace with God is that's knowing Jesus as my Savior. It's work that only Jesus can do. 
Jesus alone can die on the cross as my Savior, a sinless sacrifice in my place, a sinner. That gives me what we would call theologically a positional truth in the fact that I am at peace with God, right? Scripture says that prior to that, prior to trusting in that, putting my faith in Christ to be my peace with God, it says that I am at war with God. I'm an enemy of God. My mind, my heart, my will, everything is bent towards away from God. But putting, looking at Christ as my Savior on the cross puts me back at peace with God. It reconciles me with God. It reunites me with God, my Creator. And in that moment, I have positionally peace with God. You hear me? So who has that? Who has peace with God? Awesome. I'm so grateful that some of you guys raised your hand. You connected that. Who has peace with God? Anybody and anyone that puts their faith in Jesus as their Savior has peace with God. You got that? Now let me ask you this. Who has the peace of God? You and I get to choose that. I think what Paul's walking us through here is that you and I get to choose that. The peace of God, or peace with God, depending on your theology, you choose, you don't choose. I mean, we, we choose it. I'll right with to respond. Every Christian, every believer has peace with God. Not every believer. And, and then we have this all the time. It's positional. can't be taken from us. This peace with God. The peace of God, on the other hand, every Christian is invited to experience it, but I'll be the first to admit, I don't always. But that's not on God. That's a struggle and a wrestle with my own humanity. Do you understand the difference? Peace with God comes through knowing Jesus as my Savior. The peace of God comes through knowing Jesus as Lord. Again, I think that's why Paul over and over and over again in this passage talks about Lord, 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 Lordship, Lord, Lord, Lord. Why? Because while anxiety is not a sin, the reason why my mind is divided is because I go through the issues of life and I think I'm actually in control of this. And at the same time, I realize and go, I'm not in control of this. I know what's best and right for me. Holy crap, I don't know what's best and right. I don't even know how to dress my kids properly in the morning. I think I can do this, and I desire this, and I want this, and I'm going after this. And yet, over here is the reality of life in a broken world that impedes my ability often to do that. And so I actually have to acknowledge, I need a Lord. So I think what Paul's talking about is one of the ways that we can experience the peace of God is actually resigning in our minds, I am not Lord of my own life. I am not in control. I cannot figure this out. I do not have all the wisdom for this. I do not have all the powers or the resources for this. I resign my stance that I am in control of my own life. And instead, I hold on to something that's actually a greater truth. I know the Lord, and I do have peace with him, and I can also experience the peace of him and in him because I do believe he is Lord. I do believe he is more powerful than anything else. I do believe his resources are unlimited. I do believe he sees me. I do believe that he cares for me. I do believe that he knows me. I do believe that he loves me. I do believe that his spirit indwells me. I do believe these things. And I'm going to work them out in process. And that's where Paul goes next. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, anything worthy of being prostrate before, think about these things. 
and what you have learned and what you've received and what you've heard, what you've seen in me, practice them. And the God of peace will be with you. So I think what Paul is saying and reminding us in this, these passages here, it's in chapter 2 when Paul says, do you remember when Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Salvation comes through our Savior, right? Peace with God, positional, we have it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling so that you can experience the peace of God. There's work and things that I need to do out of grace. I've already got the salvation. Now I need to experience the salvation. So there's things I need to do. Paul tells us what to do here too. He says what? He says, think about and put into action. And what does he tell us to think about? Think about what's true. Think about what's honorable. Think about what's just. Think about what's pure. Think about what's lovely. Think about what's commendable. Think about what's excellent. Think about what is worthy of worship. Think about these things. See, again, as as I've spent time to meditate and think through these passages, I've had to be honest and write down for myself. It's been really helpful to go, what do I believe is true right now in this circumstance? What actually is honorable in my thinking as I'm relating to this thing? What is true right now? What is worthy of praise? And often where I get stuck is that praise one. Not stuck meaning I can't name anything, but because I actually list, if I'm being honest, I list and think that there are things that are worthy of more praise than Jesus. This thing, if I had it, would fix everything because this is more worthy than Jesus. The truth is I already have Jesus, do I not? But I don't have this thing yet. And I'm just thinking that if I could have this one thing, I'll be totally at peace. I'll be totally satisfied. What does that actually mean? Right? It means I believe that this is of greater worth than Jesus. You tracking with me? Again, this is a friendship letter, an encouragement letter, but Paul also is getting very serious with us and very practical. I have to think about what do I honestly think is excellent? Jesus, you're excellent. But this thing over here, that's excellent. You know what I mean? Go on down the list. And I've, I've done this. I'm being serious. I've written it out. What it does is it shows me where my mind is divided. It shows me the potential places where the anxieties can kick in. Because I'm so concerned about this and who can do it and figure it out. And Jesus is going, think about what I'm inviting you to. Think about what's true, what's honorable, what's just, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable, what's excellent, what's worthy of praise. Think about these things. But Paul says not only think, Paul says what you've learned and received and heard and seen, practice these things as well. Practice these things. Think and practice and the God of peace will be with you. See, one of the things I've had to think about and realize is that anxiety, it's not just self-centered thinking and it's not just others thinking, but anxiety is human-centered thinking. You track with me? Some of the things that we're anxious about, it's not even about us. So I don't want you to hear that too, that if you're anxious, it's just because you're self-centered. No, no, no. You might actually be thinking about and worried about someone else. Which you'd go, oh, that's honorable. That's lovely. That's praiseworthy. Yeah, it is. But if it's causing you anxiety because you're thinking about someone else and you're thinking, I've got to control that, but I realize I can't. I've got to be Lord of that, but I realize I can't. I've got to be the one who, ah, where do you, where do you actually go? You could be thinking about someone else, but you're still anxious. So anxiety isn't self-centered thinking. It can be other-centered thinking, and that's the problem is that it's human-centered thinking. What Paul is saying is whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of worship, he's saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's saying what he writes over in Colossians chapter 3. He says, therefore, since you've been raised with Christ, you have peace with God. Now strive for the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where he's Lord. 
and set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. My friend Ricardo, he also told me this when we were talking, just processing. He said, anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. I liked that. I thought it was funny. Nobody, none of you did. That's okay. Anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. See, what Paul is saying is set your mind on things above and then practice, put into action these things that you've seen and heard. It's again calling us into a holistic submission and surrender to God as Lord, to Jesus as Lord. To fix your mind on him and now to move your actions in line with him as well and the things that he would call us to. And why? Because anxiety is destructive and anxiety steals from us. It's the perpetual thief. It steals, it kills, it destroys. It keeps us from moving forward. It keeps us from experiencing the kingdom of God that is here and now. And that's not what God has for us. That's not what God desires for us. I want to invite you to think about two last things. Paul says this. Paul says in verse 7 again, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, I want us to think about Paul's context. Where's Paul? Where's Paul? Who's he standing next to 24-7? A guard. Paul knows the reality of what a guard is. A Praetorian guard in particular. A very strong, well-trained, heavily armored, very powerful guard that is dictating everything that is happening in his world. What enters, what exits, what can happen around him. And Paul, I believe, is using that language of his own context and saying, when you go to God in prayer, when you go to God in supplication, when you go to God in thanksgiving, when you go to God and present specific requests to him, what will happen is that this peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, this thing of anxiety that is natural, can be overcome by what's supernatural, God's peace, and God himself, Christ himself, will come and stand guard over your heart and mind. He will be with you to guard your heart and mind. And so when you fix your mind on things above, Jesus himself acts as this guard that, allow, that, 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 that dictates what is allowed to enter or exit your mind. That Jesus himself wants to come and stand there and guard your heart and your mind from getting entrapped in these other things. It's an invitation, I believe, again, to say, Jesus, come. Come and do that. Come and be that for me. I realize and recognize I can't. I am not. No one else can. But Jesus, you, out of your love, would you come and guard my heart and mind? Come and be the gatekeeper of my thoughts. I'm going to do my part to fix my eyes on what's true, lovely, honorable, praiseworthy, right? I'm going to do those things. And I believe that you, on your part then, you're going to come and you're going to stand and you're going to, you're going to be guard over what, what comes in here. Because he cares about that. He does. And so here's my last thing for you. Paul says, put these into practice. One of the verses that's been a meditation for me is Isaiah 26.3. You've heard me say this before. And it says this, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Lord, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. He, she. Put your own pronoun in there. See, I believe, again, this is a picture of what Paul is talking about. When we set our minds on those things and begin to act in it, God comes God comes and guards and gives us the peace. Holds us, keeps us in perfect peace because we're exercising practice and trust to think upon him. And so Paul says, practice these things that you've seen and received and learned from me. I want to share with you a couple practices that are practical for me that have helped me to be Christ-focused. And maybe some of these will work for you. 
one of the things that I've started to do in line with this is worship. In the morning often, I'll listen to a worship song. Or I'll take a praise psalm and I'll read through it slowly, meditatively, helping my heart and my mind again lift up and come prostrate before the one who's in charge. I, I, ch- I challenge, I invite. If you're struggling, battling with anxiety, take this week, every day this week, take these next seven days, and instead of starting your morning the way you normally do, start your morning with worship. Whether you worship whether you open a psalm and read David's words of worship or whether you play a song or a video like we did this morning, start your time with worship, even just for five minutes. Let that be the very first thing you do and see what effect that has on your day. I promise you, starting with worship, engaging in worship will affect your day as it relates to anxiety. Your mind will begin to come more in line as opposed to being divided. Worship has a radical effect on our day. I journal journal because writing things out, it's, it's clinically proven. It slows you down. It helps you to breathe. It's actually a release of the things. So often anxiety is because I hold all these things in my mind, but if I can write it down, it's actual release of that thing physically, tangibly somewhere, and it actually helps me. So I've, I could show, I can open my journal and I could list for you a thing from last week. I wrote down 20 things that that morning I was going, oh gosh, I don't want to face these. Well, here's, here they are, Lord. And I just write them down in my journal. Get them out, get them down. It's a way of casting and releasing. The next, silence and stillness. What we did this morning, and actually what we're going to do in a couple minutes. Silence and stillness and deep breathing. As my wife said, there's, there's something true clinically about how God created us. Do some deep breaths. And to realize that it's not just, I'm not sitting by myself, it's not alone. No, no, it's, it's focusing my mind on the fact that God is there with me. His spirit indwells me. He loves me. He wants to hold me. And so I'm drawing near to him in trust and in surrender and in quietness. And I'm breathing as an act of worship to say, God, all of who I am, all that I have, I'm bringing to you to sit with you. Because I believe you're powerful and you love me. Healthy boundaries. Two areas, I would say. Healthy boundaries on technology. Healthy boundaries on work. Most people that I talk to that are dealing with anxiety in some sort, when I ask them about like, work schedules, some of them don't have a regular practice of Sabbath. It's constant go, 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 go. They don't know how to shut off. They don't know how to slow down. They don't have healthy boundaries in that. Or it's often technology. How do, I start your, how do you start your day? Well, I start by looking at this, 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 and this. How do you end your day? I end my day looking at this, 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 and this. What do you do on your lunch break? I read this, 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 and this. All things that cause your mind to think about not necessarily things that are pure, not necessarily that are lovely, not necessarily that are true, not necessarily that are praiseworthy, but things that cause you to ramp up and I want that, I desire that, I need that. If I have that, that'll be my peace, that'll be my joy, that'll be this. Boundaries, healthy boundaries. Healthy boundaries is a key part of healthy spirituality and experiencing the peace of God. And lastly, authentic community. Again, anxiety, they say clinically, has three, three ways that it stems or three ways that it manifests itself. It's this thinking that comes from insecurity. Something bad will happen. Helplessness, there's nothing I can do. Isolation, there's no one who will or can understand or help me. Engage in authentic community. Find people that you can be totally honest with about who you are, where you are, and what are the emotions that are raging within you. Talk to them about the ways that your mind is divided. Engage in honest, healthy conversations. And again, remember, this is a communal letter, right? Paul's writing this to a community and saying to a community of people, the Lord's at hand. Don't be anxious. When you are, worship in prayer. Bring your supplication to God. Engage in thanksgiving and bring specific requests and allow the God of peace to come and guard your heart and mind in his love and in his goodness. Amen?